Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we're heavy on the history. In honor of Veterans Day, we'll talk about words from World War II, and in honor of National Novel Writing Month, because you have to name everyone and everything you create in fiction, we'll talk about how places get their names. A few months ago, I participated in a game show fundraiser for the Noah Webster House with a bunch of other language people, and Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster made an offhanded comment about World War II being a rich source of new words, which made me curious about which words. So I thought since today is Veterans Day in the United States, it would be a good time to satisfy that curiosity. How might you go about finding such words, you might wonder? Well, the online version of the Oxford English Dictionary has some fabulous search filters. And the most interesting way I was able to search for World War II words was to search for entries that included the word slang in their etymology and that show the first time the word was used as being in the early 1940s. For example, you may remember that a few episodes ago, when we were talking about the word schnoz being a word for your nose, I mentioned that pie hole is a word for your mouth. Well, my 1940s slang search turned up a similar earlier word, cake hole, that also describes your mouth, and it started out as military slang. You can tell because the first citation is from a 1943 book called Service Slang and reads, quote, Cake Hole, the airman's name for his or anyone else's mouth, unquote. Pie Hole is much newer. It didn't show up until 1983, but I'd be willing to bet it was modeled on Cake Hole. So we can ultimately thank those 1940s airmen for both. I guess back then cake was just more popular than pie. And the term actually made me wonder if troops got cake in their rations. It seemed unlikely, since I can't imagine cake traveling well. And as far as I can tell, at least for troops from the U.S. and U.K., they didn't get cake. The treats they got in their rations were typically candy. But I guess they were just fantasizing about cake? And that line of reasoning led me to investigate Twinkies because of their famed long shelf life. Could they have been stable enough to travel with the troops? I mean, they're kind of cake. Well, Twinkies did exist by World War II. They were invented in 1930, but back then their shelf life was only 26 days. And it turns out that even today with more preservatives, the decades-long shelf life is a myth. They'll still supposedly only last about 45 days before they go bad. You might think I'm an eager beaver doing all that extra research about cake and Twinkies, and if you call me that, you'd also be using World War II slang. The first use of eager beaver seems to be among aviation cadets in San Antonio, Texas in 1943. 
And by 1945, the journal American Speech wrote about the phrase, defining an eager beaver as, quote, a soldier who is so anxious to impress his superiors that he volunteers for every job that offers or otherwise displays unusual diligence, unquote. The OED notes that the phrase work like a beaver to describe working hard goes all the way back to 1741 in the United States. So the idea of a hardworking beaver was old, but the phrase eager beaver was new in the 1940s. If you aren't working hard, you could be described as fouling up. And that phrase also comes from World War II. The military acronym SNAFU, meaning Situation Normal, All Fouled Up, appeared in the early 1940s and appears to be the source of fouled up being used alone soon after to mean someone made a mistake. And yes, I know the F can also stand for another word, and to F up is older than to foul up. It seems it was the euphemism that appeared during the war, and the OED has many examples. In 1942, Time magazine wrote, quote, The army has a laconic term for chronic befuddlement, snafu, situation normal, all fouled up, unquote. And then in 1943, the Saturday Evening Post included a line that read, quote, Those knuckleheads are all fouled up, unquote. Later, snafu was even used as a verb and an adjective, as in, quote, Eddie had twice this season snafu'd a batting order, unquote, from the Baltimore Sun in 1953, and, quote, my arrangements seemed snafu'd, unquote, from the book Ultimate Issue by George Mark Stein in 1981. Interestingly, even though SNAFU is an acronym, it's written in all lowercase letters, like a word, much the same way we write scuba and radar as words, even though they're short for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus and radio detecting and ranging, respectively. And radar is another word that popped up in the United States military during World War II. The British military at the time referred to the technology as RDF, which stood for Radio Direction Finding. But it was the American term that stuck. Scuba, radar, laser, sonar, and snafu are all acronyms, words made up by the first letter or letters of other words, but that are pronounced as words themselves. You might think they've been around forever, but according to Edam Online, acronyms were exceedingly rare before World War II, and the term acronym only entered English in 1943, borrowed from the German word acronym spelled with a K. It's funny to think there wasn't a word for them until the World War II era because they're so prevalent today, especially in the government, military, space program, and so on. So many acronyms. And that acro at the beginning of the word acronym is the same acro at the beginning of the word acrostic, which is a word with a similar meaning and which is much, much older, going all the way back to the 1500s. An acrostic is something like a poem or puzzle in which the first letter of each word or line spells out its own word, much like an acronym. But let's get back to those knuckleheads who were all fouled up. Knucklehead, to describe someone as stupid, has been around since the late 1800s, according to Adam Online. So it's not technically slang that originated during World War II, but it was significantly popularized during that time because of the Cadet RF Knucklehead Don't posters that were displayed at U.S. Army Air Force training fields throughout the Southwest, aimed at reducing the number of flying accidents, according to a May 1942 edition of Life magazine. 
Cadet Knucklehead, quote, does everything cadets are not supposed to do, unquote, according to an April 1942 edition of the U.S. Air Service magazine. The cartoons created by artist Jack Zumwalt of Randolph Field, Texas, show pictures such as Cadet Knucklehead gawking at a bird while flying toward a mountain with the advice, don't fail to be constantly observant in the air. And I couldn't find anything to definitively support this, but I suspect the RF in Cadet RF Knucklehead's name comes from abbreviating Randolph Field. Cadet Knucklehead probably spent a lot of time being debriefed after his calamitous missions, and that term, debrief, seems to have started in the Royal Air Force in the United Kingdom. I thought you'd like the first citation in the OED for this one from John O'London's Weekly in 1945, because the very first one, the first written evidence the OED has for this word, seems to be complaining about not liking the word. It reads, The RAF use of the atrocity debrief. When airmen received their orders for an operation, they're said to be briefed for it, a quite legitimate extension of the legal term. But when they return to give their report, they don't just report as one would think. They are debriefed, unquote. And you can hear the annoyance in the writing. It's an atrocity. He hates the word debrief. Now, maybe Mr. John O'London thought he was the head honcho of the English language. And if he did, he'd have been using another World War II word, honcho. This one comes from the Japanese word honcho, which means group leader or squad leader, and it was first used, quote, among American prisoners of war in Japan, unquote, according to the OED. For example, the Coshocton Tribune in Ohio had a photo caption in 1945 that read, This prisoner is the honcho, or group headman in the POW stockade. Today, head honcho is a casual way to describe someone in charge, the boss. Now, would the head honcho drive a Jeep today? Maybe, if it were an especially nice Jeep, but I was surprised to learn that the word Jeep started as a cartoon character and became World War II military slang before it became a well-known brand name. The first Jeep was Eugene the Jeep, a character in the Popeye comics who first appeared in 1936. Eugene was a magical creature, sometimes mistaken for a dog, who could only say the word Jeep. The story goes that when the American military developed the vehicle we now think of as a World War II Jeep, they called it a general purpose vehicle and abbreviated it GP for general purpose. Since GP sounds a lot like Jeep, the 1941 soldiers associated their new, versatile vehicle with the nimble cartoon character and started calling it a Jeep. By 1943, a trademark was filed, and by 1945, civilian models were being manufactured in Ohio. Finally, I'll end with one word I found that isn't exactly a World War II term, but I think you'll still find interesting. Jab, to describe an injection. This came up in my search because its first use as a verb, meaning to give an injection, was in 1938 but it was a noun describing getting an injection earlier, so that's why I feel like it doesn't quite count. But we think of it as a very British word today, and it is used more often in Britain today. But the Oxford English Dictionary says the noun originated as slang in the United States in 1913. 
So the next time you want to complain about all the American newscasters affecting British English to describe people who got vaccinated as getting the jab, stop yourself because we started it. This next segment is by Ryan Paulson. If you've ever tried writing fiction or dabbled in world building in video or tabletop games like Dungeons and Dragons, you may have noticed that one of the more challenging elements is something you may not expect, coming up with place names. When you think about it, as exotic and evocative as the names some writers can come up with, J.R.R. Tolkien leaps to mind, here, in the real world, place names can be a bit on the boring side. If you're listening in North America, you might immediately think of how many cities and towns are simply named directly for places from the old world. Places like London, Ontario, Paris, Missouri, Brussels, Illinois, Amsterdam, Pennsylvania, Berlin, Connecticut, and Dublin, Texas. Sometimes the founders of places like this put a new at the beginning, as in New Hampshire, but sometimes it seemed like they were just homesick and wanted a familiar name for their new surroundings. Beyond just taking an old name and applying it to a new place, most names for cities, towns, and regions can be sorted into two main categories, geography and history. When you get right down to it, places are usually named for the things around them or someone famous who contributed to their founding or maybe even both. For example, the city where I went to university was called Peterborough. It was named for a man named Peter, and the suffix borough comes from the same word that lends itself to the endings of places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Edinburgh, Scotland. It's derived from an old English word meaning hill or hill fort. So Peterborough is the city on the hill that Peter helped build. Pittsburgh is named for William Pitt, and it was the site of Fort Pitt. As for Edinburgh, the first bit is much older and has its own complicated and contested history, but if you've ever been or you ever get a chance to visit Edinburgh, you'll immediately recognize that the borough part is from the hill. The castle is on a huge hill. In the UK, a lot of places have the ending C-E-S-T-E-R or C-H-E-S-T-E-R. Manchester may be the most prominent one, but you'll find Dorchester, Gloucester, and the famous Worcester as well. And even though they may not sound like it, they all end with C-E-S-T-E-R. That ending comes from a Latin word meaning fort or castle. So someone built a castle in a nice place, it became more and more well-known as people settled around it, and then eventually that became the name of the city or town or even region itself. By the way, it might seem like this is a specifically UK thing, but remember how homesickness led to the naming of US and Canadian cities and towns? There are actually 27 towns across the United States named Chester. Speaking of the UK, and now that we've brought up Worcestershire, you may be thinking about some other frankly baffling place names from that side of the pond. Worcestershire definitely has the most memes playing off how different its spelling is from its pronunciation, but it's far from the most extreme example of that quintessentially British phenomenon. The top contenders for that particular crown have to go to the likes of Chumley, spelled C-H-O-L-M-O-N-D-E-L-E-Y, Wolsery, spelled, it looks like Wolfardisworthy, and Fenshaw, spelled, it looks like Featherstonehaw. Very different spellings from the pronunciations. 
It's easy to get wrapped up in the sheer complexity of names like these, but a closer look reveals that even these stick to the general rule we spoke about earlier. Take Fenshaw, for instance. It's a compound made up of three Old English words for feather, stone, and corner. The exact particulars of these references may be lost to history, but as bewildering as the name seems at first, it's still just using concrete items as a reference to help people find a place. In North America, when early settlers started giving places English names, they also tended to borrow heavily from local indigenous languages. In New York State, for instance, there are 62 counties. Of those, 36 are named after people, either Americans or royalty, from wherever the early settlers came from. But another 19 counties take their names from various Native American languages that were used to describe the areas that were being settled or the tribes that lived there. For example, Oneida County is named after the Oneida people. The remaining seven counties were mostly named after some sort of geographic feature, like a river. And speaking of New York, while in an American context, the city is very old. It had its name changed to New York from New Amsterdam way back in 1664. To anyone who isn't a recent arrival to the continent, and by that I mean people who only got here in the last few hundred years, New York is a veritable spring chicken. Obviously, there have been settlements around where the modern city of New York is now for thousands of years, but York, the city that gave it its name, was founded by Roman legionnaires in the year 71 AD. And guess what? The name comes from an ancient Celtic compound that most scholars think meant something along the lines of the place of the yew trees. So if you're ever struggling to flesh out your game, story, or other imaginary world with some truly authentic place names, remember to look around at what's nearby and think about who helped bring people there in the first place. It's how people have been naming places for thousands of years. That segment was written by Ryan Paulson, who's an avid word nerd and co-host of the etymology podcast, Lexitecture. Finally, I have a familect story from Daniel. This is Daniel Kirk, and I have a familect story. My brother Tim said, Daddy is unconging. I had to see what he meant. My dad had just finished working on his 63 Chevy Impala and was lowering the bumper jack. As he worked the handle, the ratchet made a rhythmic clunk-clunk or unkung. Tim said, see, Daddy is unkunging the car with his jacker. And that's what we called it from then on. Thank you. Thanks for the story, Daniel. A word that's formed after a sound like that is called an onomatopoeia from the Greek. Other such words include blurt, burble, chatter, and jabber. If you want to call with the story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our operations and editorial manager is Michelle Margulis, and our assistant manager is Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. That's all. Thanks for listening. Shh. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.